0: Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipfandstock.com, that's wipf stock.com as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Guys, well, I'm really excited to be with y'all and um, talking about how to write write a talk, write a sermon, write a Bible study. Uh, I think the principles we're going to talk about here can apply whether you're speaking to a New Year's conference seminar with 200 people or whether it's a sorority Bible study with 15 girls. Um, Certainly, you would need to adjust some of them depending on that. So let me pray for us, and I think we're supposed to be done at 11. Um, I don't think I'll talk that whole time, so maybe we'll have a little bit of time for questions at the end. Let me pray. Lord... Please bless this time of us listening and learning about how to be faithful stewards of the scriptures, how to rightly divide your word, and help us come away with very specific, tangible, concrete points of application that we can put into our life and ministry even next week. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, and my guess is a lot of you, maybe not all, but maybe maybe all or going to be having to speak at least once on the Beach Project. So if nothing else, you can apply it there. So let me, this, all of that I'm going to say is not necessarily authoritative. Some of this is just kind of personal best practices or ideas. So feel free to pick and choose from what's most helpful. Let me throw out a few books if you want to read and study more on this. The first one I'd say, if you've never read it, is Andy Stanley, Communicating for Change. If you're wanting to grow in deep reform theology, don't read Andy Stanley. If you're wanting to learn practical speaking and leadership skills, he might be the best, and that's a great book. The second one I'd tell you to go to uh, would probably be Preaching by Tim Keller, and honestly what I'd tell you to do is buy it and just read the appendix. The appendix is about 50 pages, but it's a how-to write a sermon, and it's really good, and if you like the appendix, then go back and read the whole book, but I'd literally start with the appendix. Um the third one, maybe if you want to get a little bit more academic, is uh, Christ-Centered Preaching by Brian Chappell, but that really is like a seminary book, so it's a little boring and dry at times, but it's good. The fourth one, I would say, would be um, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, and they just released a new edition with four new chapters. It's still very short, and uh, but it's really helpful. I'd encourage you to read that one. I just I, I rarely reread a book a second time, but I reread that one just last month, um, so I could give you more, but it's... Those would be four books if you want to do. So first point would be choose a main text or topic. And I'd say even if you're doing a topical sermon, like if they said, hey, we want you to speak on prayer at Beach Project, I think it's typically best to pick one main passage. So say I'm going to use Luke chapter 18 and talk about prayer from uh, the uh, on prayer. And and, I'm not saying you can't reference other verses, but especially when you're new and you're young and you're starting out, it's helpful to start with one text for two reasons. In one sense, it's easier. You just have to study this one text. You don't have to study all these different verses. The other sense, it's safer because it'll make you make sure you're saying what the Bible says and not just what you want to say based on your hobby horses. So I would strongly encourage you, start with just one text, and if you want to bring in secondary, supplementary text, that's fine, but try to learn how to pick a passage, even for a topic, and just teach that. Okay? Now you're like, well, if let's just hypothetically say you were teaching on prayer, how should you know which one to choose? I'll give you four different ways to choose one. Pick the text that you know says the most about your subject. So if you're like, well, what's the longest passage in the whole Bible on prayer? That could be a good one. Or you could say, pick the passage that you know the best. You may say, Luke 18 might actually say more about prayer, but I'm not really familiar with that, but... Luke 11 is the Lord's Prayer, and I know the Lord's Prayer really well. Great. Choose that one. Or just pick the one you like the most. You know, maybe there's a verse in Isaiah that you memorized as a kid about prayer. Okay? Use that one. Or sometimes it may boil down to pick the passage that you have the most material on. So, for example, let's say you're going to teach the Lord's Prayer, and that shows up in Luke and in Matthew. And let's say you have 20 commentaries on Matthew and two on Luke. I'd probably preach the one in Matthew. So, that's one way to think about what text do you want to preach. The second thing I'd say, and again, you don't have to do all this stuff, okay? Pick and choose what's realistic is try to read from several different English translations. I don't care. I mean, unless you're really an expert in the Greek. Like, unless you can just take the Bible and read Greek and Hebrew, uh, Start with English because you think English, you're going to preach in English or teach in English, and all the listeners are going to hear in English. I have probably five or six or seven, I don't know, different good English translation. Here's one called the Williams Translation. I'd never heard of until I heard Jerry Bridges talking about it, and I went out and bought it. It, This is one of the best reasons to have a big ministry expense budget. Anytime you hear about a good Bible, go buy it, okay? Uh, The Message. I wouldn't do all my daily devotionals from it, but sometimes it can give a different aspect. Just have different text of the English Bible that you read it in, the passage. Third thing, try to find repeated words or repeated themes. What's the word that shows up over and over again? What's the theme that shows up over and over again? So for instance, if you were studying the Lord's Prayer, part of what you might see is, okay, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer and then afterwards he comes back and he talks about forgiveness more. He did not do that with the other stuff he talks about, but forgiveness is kind of a repeated theme in that Lord's Prayer. So maybe I need to talk about that a lot. Um, the fourth thing, study the key words. Now, we all have all these different tools, whether you've spent hundreds of dollars on Bible works or Logos, or, you know, you use the blue letter Bible, all the free stuff, where we can study it in the Greek and the Hebrew, and that's helpful. But honestly, guys, more importantly than studying the definition in the Greek and the Hebrew is studying in the context of Scripture. It's more important to say where does this same Greek or Hebrew word show up in the rest of the Bible? And especially, where does this same, say, Greek word show up in other things that Luke has written? That, that's, that makes it a lot of insight. Because Greek and Hebrew, in a lot of ways, work the same way English does. The word love can have very different semantic range of meaning. And context actually helps you understand how was the word love used there better Than just a definition, right? It's the same way in the Bible, okay? Fifth thing, study commentaries on every verse that you're going to talk about if you can, okay? I've got actually something I'm doing for the seminary class that I'm teaching tomorrow that some of y'all are in, and I've got so many different passages, there's no way that I have time to look at a commentary on every single passage. So what I try to do is say, okay, what are the verses that are either the most important for what I'm teaching, they're kind of the most central, or what are the verses that I'm the most confused on? And those are the ones that I need to at least listen, and this would be one I'd kind of hammer, at least read one commentary or one study Bible or listen to one other person's sermon on the text. And if for no other reason, just to make sure that you're not a crazy heretic, right? You, you don't want to get up and teach a passage and then later come home and read John Calvin's commentary and he specifically says this is not what that passage means. And you're like, gummit. that's exactly what I just went and taught every student at Barry that it means. Um, so, do that. Um, one thing to do is, you know, let's say you're going to use the ESV for your teaching. I would read the passage in the ESV multiple times, over and over again. Five, six, seven times. So you become familiar with it. Again, sometimes you'll see more themes and things like that. Seventh thing, if you have time, read or listen to someone else preaching on the text if possible. Now, you have to know yourself. If you're going There was a guy that used to be on our staff team, he now is a PCA pastor at a local PCA church, he's doing a great job, but anytime when he was on campus outreach staff, he was asked to speak, he would basically just give John a sermon. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you give John Piper credit, <laughs> But that's not usually best. It'd be better for you to have to personally wrestle with the text and say, "Here's what the Lord has been showing me," and just find a quote John Piper song. But if there's a danger of you just listening to somebody and then quoting and just mimicking them, then either don't do this or save it until way late in your process, maybe after you've written your outline or sermon. Point eight: outline the passage. Try to find three main points. Do you always have to have three main points? No. Sometimes you can have two. Sometimes you can have four. I've had seven before. I think this one's going to have 14. Okay, so, but in general, it's good to have just basic starting training wheels. Look for three main points. Okay. And ideally, you want the three main points to arise from the text. You want the three main points to come maybe from the repeated words, the repeated themes, something like that. And guys, don't don't stress too much about your points of your outline because the reality are points of the outline are just almost like mental um, stopping points in people's minds so they can just track with you. It's not necessarily essential that they remember the three points of your outline. It's more just it helps them listen to the content. Ninth point, determine one main point you want people to walk away with and try to build your whole sermon around that, Okay. Ben already said this, but I'll say it again, and it's by a guy that I've never heard of. His name is Cavet Robert, but he said, a fog in the pulpit is a cloud in the pew. So, I, you know, I remember hearing the guy that used to be the leader in Campus Outreach uh, Atlanta, he said, I tell my staff, have a point. He said, because too many times I hear them talk, and they didn't even have one point. They didn't have a point. They were just rambling. So make sure you have one point, and it's great to have one main point that everything else relates back to like spokes on the wheel, and you build around that one point. I think. Ask yourself this question. If people walk away from my Beach Project Rally talk tomorrow night and they only literally remember one thing, what is it? And try to put it into a sentence. One thing that you're going to hammer into their hearts. Okay, the tenth thing would be to find a natural pointer to Christ and the gospel in the text. And this can be hard. And you don't want to get there in a weird way. You don't want to say, I'm preaching about Rahab the prostitute and she put out a a red scarlet thread out of her window so they would know which one's hers and the color red makes me think about the blood of Jesus. That's probably not a, a good thing to do. But I will say this. Charles Spurgeon had a great... He had two great quotes on this. The first thing is he said, it's kind of like if you're in England, every village in England has a road that leads to London because London is that central in the country. Same thing. Every passage in the Bible has a path to Jesus. You may have to work to find it, but it's there. And that's what you want to do. I mean, uh, John Piper said the greatest advice that anybody ever gave him on preaching was never preach a sermon that could be preached in a mosque or a synagogue. And you understand what he's saying there? There's a lot that Christians and Muslims and Jews agree about, right? We're all against adultery. But if you just get up and preach a sermon on adultery that's ethical and it never gets to Christ and the gospel and grace and mercy, uh, then you haven't preached a Christian sermon. And so find a way to get to Christ. And the other Spurgeon quote I was going to say earlier is he said, I would rather find Christ where he is not than miss him where he is. And you hesitate to criticize Charles Spurgeon, right? The prince of preachers. But. When you read a lot of his sermons, every once in a while, you're kind of like, ah, that might be a stretch of getting to Christ. But I think he makes a good point. It's better to find Christ where he's not than to miss him where he is. Make sure that your sermons are Christ-centered, gospel-centered. Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there. You can write it down. Um, But Jesus said, this is verse 44, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. What is that? That's a Jewish way to talk about the entire Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is the whole Old Testament can seem like it's about weird stuff, but it's really all about Jesus. Always find a way to get Jesus. Okay? And I would say try to do that at the end of your sermon. I heard a guy preach a sermon Sunday night at Browood. He did a good job. It was really good. I liked it. One thing, if he had asked me for feedback, I would have told him is, you got to Christ about three-fourths of the way through your sermon, and that's fine. But I think it's better if you get to Christ, in a sense, at the end of the sermon, so you leave people really worshiping. I mean, again, I think, I think Kathy Keller one time said about Tim Keller— is that when they were still in Virginia in Hopewell, in this little small town, she noticed that about once a month, you know, Tim Keller's very smart, right? His brain is like an encyclopedia, that people are taking notes, that at the end of the sermon, they quit taking notes, and they were just worshiping. And that's a great way, is that when you start, maybe it's content heavy, and what I like to do is kind of give the content, and then give the application, hey, practically, here's what you should go do, but then end with a moment of worship. Personal preference, you don't have to do it that way, but I think that's a great way to do it. Point 11. Ideally, it's good to have an introduction, an example, an illustration, an application, and a conclusion. I don't always do this. A lot of times, I don't have a good introduction. I just, I don't think I had a good introduction today. I started by telling you books that you should read. Uh, That's not always a great way to start. But, in general, it's good to have those things. Truth is In general, guys, is powerful and effective. But organized truth can be like a sharpened sword compared to the dullness of an unorganized sermon. So, so part of what you're trying to do in the preparation and the organization, the three points, the introduction, the outline, all that, is you're trying to take a shotgun blast approach and make it into more of a laser approach so it will hit with more impact. The Word of God all by itself is powerful to change lives. And yet, how many of us, it took an illustration, an application, a story to help us understand what the Word was really saying. I was meeting a guy for coffee before this. I saw a good friend of mine, and he was having a daddy-daughter date with his senior in high school, kind of discipling her. And I went over to say, hey, and he said, hey, come here. And he said, we got a question for you. He's like, Exodus 32, Moses prayed. God changed his mind. If God's sovereign, how does that work? And I said, well, let me give you a a story, an example. And I shared it and they said, that helps. It makes sense. Okay. The word is powerful. Exodus 32 is powerful to change somebody's life. But if somebody doesn't understand Exodus 32, sometimes an illustration is what it takes to unlock the power of the scripture. Um. So I know some of my best insights come that way when I hear somebody else use a great illustration. Point 12. Again, this is not how everybody does it. I bet Ben doesn't do it this way. Okay, so there's different strokes for different folks. But when you're young and learning, here would be my encouragement. Write out the entire sermon or type it out word for word exactly how you're going to say it. Now, you may learn, no, 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 that didn't work for me. I'm more of an outline person. Fine, you can graduate from this. But I would say the training wheels approach is write a manuscript. And even, especially if you're really young and new and you're nervous about your Beach Project talk, practice it. Stand in the bathroom, look in the mirror, and practice giving it. You really want to go the extra mile, record yourself and then listen to yourself. It'll be very painful, uh, but it will be good for you. Okay. 13. This is, this is about heart and attitude. Try to communicate as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Be sympathetic. Be merciful. Be humble. Don't come across like a know-it-all. I spoke last night at Broward on evangelism. You guys, 24 years, I've worked for an outreach ministry. So I know a little bit about evangelism. But I tried to do everything I could genuinely in that talk to say, I'm not a gifted evangelism. I'm not as fruitful of an evangelist as I want to be. A lot of times I'm not as faithful as an evangelist. Let me tell you some stories of how I've made mistakes and done stuff stupid and gotten nervous and had to pray. Because I was trying to say, I don't want you to feel like I am this authoritative know-it-all and you're a bunch of dummies. So, so you talk about weaknesses so that you can connect with them. John Maxwell, who's another great guy on communication, and he actually just released a book called The 16 Laws of... Um, communication that may be a great book for you to read if you're really interested in this topic but he has this famous phrase so helpful people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and if you're just showing up at Beach Project to a bunch of students from other campuses that you don't know to talk that can be hard to communicate but if you can be genuine and I think part of that is talking honestly talking openly being vulnerable talking about weaknesses and struggles is it possible to share too much? Yes, and every once in a while with the millennial generation, we'll get an overshare. But in my experience, most people are putting their best foot forward far too often. I'd rather you err on the side of sharing a little bit too much humility and not having it all together. Okay, um, The 14th point would be pray over it. Okay? You got to pray. You got to pray. And guys, again, if you're giving one big talk this Summer for Beach Project and you're nervous about it, here's a goal. If the talk's going to last 35 minutes, commit to 35 minutes of prayer just for your talk. Pray for your own heart. Pray for the hearts of the listeners. Pray for no distractions. Pray for the audio visual. Just saturate it in prayer. And you say, well, what else should I pray? This is something recently that I've been praying for more and more pray for sanctification in the moment to happen. Now, let me give you a quote, okay? Just listen to this quote. I'm going to email this out to y'all later, okay? But here's the quote. This is by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who many people would say was the greatest preacher of the last century. He says, the first and primary object of preaching is to produce an impression. It is the impression at the time that matters, even more than what you remember subsequently. And and Lloyd Jones is reformed. He was a doctor. He's a genius. He's smart, but he's saying the impression oftentimes. What what what? Here's what he means. What did you feel when that person was speaking? Is sometimes more important than even the words they said. Edwards talking about Jonathan Edwards. In my opinion, has the true notion of preaching. It is not primarily to impart information, and while the listeners are taking notes you may be missing something of the impact of the spirit. As preachers, we must not forget this. We are not merely imparters of information. We should tell our people to read certain books themselves and get information there. The business of preaching is to make such knowledge live. So please hear me and hear Lloyd-Jones and more importantly, hear the Holy Spirit this isn't saying, okay, it doesn't matter what I say. I can just get up there and talk about Joel Osteen and Oprah stuff as long as I'm passionate. That's what'll No, that's total. you need to preach truth. You need to preach Bible. But pray that God would show up in the moment and do a supernatural work in their heart through your words that you can't do. How many of you have had this experience personally or maybe with a student, your disciple? I've had this happen so many times. Be at a New Year's conference and sitting with some guy that I brought, and I'm discipling, and Matt Chandler, whoever's on the stage, and they preach a great sermon, and I'm taking a lot of notes, and we walk out, and I turn to the guy that was with me, and he's like, "That was awesome, that's the best sermon I ever heard in my life, and you're like, man, it really was good, and you say something like, what was your favorite point, you know, what stood out to you most, and they're like, I don't even know, the whole thing was great, and you're like, well, man, just give me one nugget, like, I really, I can't even think of anything, well, And then you start to get worried. You're like, well, can you even remember what passage he was talking on? He's like, I I don't know, maybe something in Romans. But something about the power of that moment inspired that person. Now, it's always better if you can remember the content. But pray that the Holy Spirit would just be making the truth live in people's hearts. Okay? You go through the mind to get to the heart. Right? Luke 24 uh, verse 32 talks about when Jesus was talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They said our hearts were burning inside of us when he opened up the scriptures. That's what you want to happen. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Faith, saving faith, but also sanctifying faith grows in just hearing the word. That's what we're praying for. Point 15, make sure that your own heart is touched and experiencing the truth, okay? So again, let's say you're doing a sermon on forgiveness. If you're doing a sermon on forgiveness, and the whole time you're studying it, you know you've got somebody in your life that you're holding the grudge, and you're bitter, and you're hard-hearted, and you don't deal with that, you got about a 98% chance your sermon is going to fall very flat. But if you don't come up with a great outline, and you don't come up with a great introduction, and you don't come up with a great application, or illustration, or any of that, and you don't read any commentaries, you don't... But in studying the passage on forgiveness, you get broken, you get humbled, and you call your friend and you repent of the grudge you have, I bet your sermon will pierce some hearts. Because you need to be experiencing the truth, not just preaching the truth. John Owen, okay, one of the greatest theologians ever alive, and here's what he said. We must commune with God in the doctrine that we contend for. And what he's saying is if you're going to get up behind the music stand at Beach Project and in the sense, contend. You're going to argue. Hey, guys, you should believe what I'm saying about this passage. If you haven't had a personal experience of worship with God over that passage, it's going to be pretty powerless. So, let me stop there. Um, I think we got plenty of time for Q and A. If y'all want to do Q and saw one in the chat. The supremacy of Christ is by John Piper. Um, Let me stop and see if anybody has any other thoughts they'd like to add or questions they'd like to ask. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.